0: May the words of my mouth and meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. C.S. Lewis once criticized his academic contemporaries for possessing what he called chronological snobbery—an elitist opinion that that thought that the present age was the most educated the brightest, uh, the most advanced, the most sophisticated ever to grace the planet. His, uh, his close friend, Owen uh, Barfield, explained what Lewis meant a little bit further about, about uh, chronological snobbery. as saying it's the belief that intellectually humanity languished for countless generations in the most childish errors on all sorts of crucial subjects until it was redeemed by some simple scientific dictum of the last century. Lewis and Barfield, of course, were talking about their own generation in the 1930s. You know, if anything, the Western world has not retreated from that chronological snobbery that it possessed in the 30s that Lewis and Barfield were talking about. I think, if anything, we have gone further down the road of condescending arrogance when it comes to the attitude of of intellectual advancement. We do think that we are more sophisticated, that we are smarter, that we are better than any other generation before us. We have, um, we have smartphones, we have the internet, we have tablet computers, we have everything, every advancement that one could possibly want. If we were comparing generations, it would be like me next to a, a superstar basketball athlete. Who might look down and say, Joe, you know, I'm taller, stronger, faster, more athletic, frankly, better looking than you. You know, I mean, it would be true, you know, maybe not that better looking part, but all the other parts would be true. But he wouldn't have to be so smug about it, right? I mean, that's the part. And that's our world. It might be that we are more knowledgeable we have more knowledge at our fingertips than anybody in any generation prior to us we've got it all figured out and by all of course i mean all i want to give you just a few things that have happened in this past year in, on june the 6th of this year at duke university any any blue devils out there Oh no, we do have a Wake Forest demon deacon out there. He might be a little bit worried about this one. Uh, At Duke University, um, they were successfully able to implant a bioengineered blood vessel into a living patient. And they did it by developing a blood vessel using his own cells. And so they kind of built a construct. The cells were placed around it, grew itself, and then placed it back into the patient so that it wouldn't be rejected. This this techno- technological advancement is not only going to be great for heart disease and kidney disease, which blood vessels, you know, uh, bioengineered blood vessels will make a, a huge advancement in. Imagine what it's going to do for artificial organs, kidneys, hearts, all of this sort of stuff. So, massive step forward just this year. Boston University. Also this summer, there was a, a paper that was published and a discovery made that by adding a tiny bit of silver, the silver metal, to antibiotics, they were able to increase the efficiency of the antibiotic more than a thousand times its normal effectiveness. A thousand times. A penicillin that is a thousand times more powerful than it was just by itself. By adding a tiny bit of silver that the body doesn't reject and has no other harmful side effects. If you're investing in in precious metals, let me suggest that you move from gold to silver. I think there's going to be a rush sometime soon. One more. University of Minnesota this year developed a flying remote control robot, which by itself, not such a big deal. But this remote control flying robot is operated by a little cap that you can put on the operator's head no invasive instruments, just placed on the head, and you think it, and it moves. How cool is that? Golden Gophers, all right, well done. a Big Ten School. I mean, think about these advancements. Robots and blood vessels and, and silver in a hand. About, I mean, these are just the tip of the iceberg, and just this year. Genera- generationally speaking... This generation really is the athletic uh, superstar, right? I mean, taller, stronger, smarter, better looking than any other generations prior to it. Tom Brokaw said that the generation that won World War II, the, um, the Great Depression generation, survived the Depression, won the Second World War. He called that generation the greatest generation of Americans ever. And it's easy to see why he said that. But if you're from that generation, answer just an honest question in your mind. Don't gotta speak it out loud. How difficult is it to operate a cell phone? Right? I mean, if you have, you probably hand it to your 12 year old granddaughter, right? And here, fix this for me. I, I don't have any idea what's going on. Find an eight year old; they they know what's happening. But we can push back again on that generation as well, right? Uh, I, I have, um, I had this little experiment I used to run when I was a university prof, I'd take these uh, freshmen, I always get this, this class of freshmen, it'd be about 50 or 60 of them in a class, and I would say to them, yeah, I need you to raise your hand if you can recite from memory right now three phone numbers that are in your contact list in your telephone right now. If you know by memory three phone numbers, raise your hand. Okay. Okay. <laughs> If you were 20-something and in my freshman class for four years in a row, zero. Not a single student knew more than three phone numbers by memory. They didn't know their mother's phone number, you know. They, they didn't know grandma's phone number. Some of them, I don't think, even knew their own phone numbers, you know. it was it, Why? Because something else remembers it for us. Abby and I were at a, a film uh, back in the summertime, and, and we went right next door. There's this little pub up in, uh, in Cleveland Heights um, by the Cedar Lee Theater, and there's this pub next door. And so we went over there to get a, a burger and a pint, and, um, and so we're sitting there, and we walk in, and, and, um, and they were having this like trivia game. you know. So people who were there were playing this trivia game, and, and so a bunch of 20 and 30-somethings um, hanging out of the pub on a Friday night playing some trivia thing. But here's the thing. They had a rule. That if you wanted to play in this game, you had to put your phone in a basket on the table in the middle. Nobody could, and you know why, right? You know why? Because none of them actually used their own brains. They were just going to like look everything up. And so maybe the older generation had something on this one in the fact that um, they actually used their brains on a more collective sort of scale. But if we want to talk about just generational collective learning. There's no generation like this present one. And that's why we have what Lewis called chronological snobbery. We actually do think that we're better than all previous generations. I want to read you a passage from our gospel reading that was just read read a moment ago. Chapter 1, beginning of the very first verse in the lesson from the gospel lesson, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit, Matthew says. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. You know, Joseph might have been a country bumpkin from a backwater town. He probably knew nothing about antibiotics. No, he didn't probably. He definitely knew nothing about antibiotics. He knew nothing about remote control anything. He couldn't envision an automobile. He was about as backwater as you probably get in a backwater generation. But Joseph knew where babies come from. Nobody had to tell him that one. And he decided to dismiss Mary quietly. Joseph and Mary were engaged, but they were engaged like people from our world are engaged. You know how how we do it, right? I mean, you've seen this a million times uh, uh, just in your own experience as well as, you know, you're at a hockey game, an intermission. You know, some guy is on the screen and he he drops down on a knee and pulls out a ring and and everybody applauds. The girl says yes, and then she whispers, but not really. (laughs) No, she does it. She says yes, and and she takes the ring and they're all happy and they kiss and, and, you know, they get married. That's not Joseph of Mary's world. Not at all Joseph of Mary's world. There were two stages of of engagement. The first part is called kiddushin. And this is sort of um, an agreement. This is where the would-be groom meets with the father of the bride. Nobody else is sort of involved in this, just the groom and, and the father. And a deal is made. Property is exchanged. A price is settled upon. I know this grates against our sensibilities, but the young girl, and it was always a girl, I mean, this is a very young 13, 14-year-old, had no say in the matter at all. Her father made the arrangement. And once it was agreed upon, once the father and the would-be groom made the price to settled the arrangement, it was a done deal. It was a binding contract. There was no getting out of it by the groom. He couldn't just say, you know, I met this other girl. (laughs) I mean, he couldn't do that at all. The only way out of it was in this waiting period. They had about a year waiting period between the time that the agreement was made and the time that they actually had the second part of the engagement, which was a feast and a celebration, and at the end of which he would take his wife home and they would live together. In that period between the feast and the initial uh, arrangement, they had no intimate relations, this would-be groom and his, his, uh, his espoused bride. No intimate relations. And if in that interim period she was to be involved in an intimate relationship outside, he then could divorce her and that would take that. He would have to actually file for divorce uh, 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 from this, uh, this woman he was engaged to. This is Joseph and Mary's world. And everything was going fine. Joseph had met with Mary's father. The arrangement had been set. They were to be married. They were in the interim period. And she goes and gets pregnant. And Joseph doesn't say anything about Holy Spirit. He says something about divorce. Right? We're just going to make this a quiet thing in. And be done with it. He's a decent man. He doesn't want to disgrace her. But he knows she has something for which to be disgraced. He has no choice. There's no other way he can deal with this situation. You see, Matthew tells us, he tells us, the reader, that Mary was impregnated by the Holy Spirit. He doesn't say that Joseph knew this. In fact, The implication is that Joseph absolutely did not know this. Joseph assumes that Mary was pregnant in the more, how shall we say, customary manner. And of course that's what he thinks. Of course that's what he thinks. And then he goes to sleep and he has a dream. Chapter 1, verse 20. But when he had considered this, that is, divorcing Mary, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. I wonder what most of us would have done if we had woken from that dream. If we had been in Joseph's place and woken up from that dream... I imagine most of us would say to ourselves, maybe even out loud, I frequently talk to myself. I find that I'm quite the conversationalist when I want to be. So um, I, I would say to myself, wow, that 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 was, an, that was a wild dream. You know, that was... I, I would probably blame it on pepperoni pizza. You know, I would say to myself something like, Joe, you shouldn't be eating pizza so late at night. You know, or Mexican food. Oh, you know, that gives me kind of wild dreams too. No more tacos for you after midnight. Um... I might do that. Somebody might... You might say to a friend, Hey, Bob! Hey, Betty! You want to hear something crazy? Let me tell you about the dream I had last night. Right? That would... This is going to blow your socks off right here. Maybe because it's spiritual. You know, an angel of the Lord appears in a dream... Maybe because it's spiritual, we might we might take a moment and pray about it. Right? You woke up and you would say, "Lord, is that really from you? Are you trying to tell me something?" Duh! Right? Uh, you had a dream, uh, but we would say that, right? Listen to me. I know this is true. We would all be suspicious, at best. If you're in Joseph's situation today and had the dream today that he had, we would all doubt at best. I would. Don't tell me you wouldn't because I know you would. Really? Did this really happen? Lord, are you really saying this to me? We are products of our culture and our culture is a culture of doubt and suspicion. I remember one time when I was I was in graduate school and we had to review this book and I hammered it. I mean, I didn't really like it and so I just let loose. I was firing guns blazing when the when the prof came in. I just told him absolutely everything I hated about the book. And by the way, on page twenty seven, he had a semicolon. He should have put a comma. You know everything that I could possibly think of, and and and, um, and the prof says to me. Well, Joe, it seems that you have a well-developed hermeneutic of suspicion. (laughs) Which is a sort of fancy way of saying you interpret everything with a critical eye. He came back and he twisted it a little bit more and he said, but I would like to see you develop a hermeneutic of charity. And I thought, oh, that hurt, you know. Um, But he was right. See, I'm a product of the same culture that you are. A product of a culture of suspicion and doubt. I've been burned too many times. We don't like to look like fools. I mean, for heaven's sakes, we don't even know our best friend's phone number. And if somebody points that out, we're going to be really embarrassed. We don't want somebody to show us how silly we look in a culture that is so advanced, in a time where we have so much to be proud of. We are not going to turn the course of our lives over to a dream. Nobody's going to change the course of their life based upon a dream. Verse 24. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took Mary as his wife. Pardon the pun, but no sentence more pregnant with meaning than that one. When he awoke from the dream, He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. I think we get all hung up on the virgin birth. I mean, that's... I mean, do you really believe... Come on. Right there. You want to see a miracle in the first chapter of Matthew's Gospel? Look at verse 24. Joseph had a dream and he woke up and he did what the Lord had commanded him to do. You know something, for all of our advances in knowledge, in science, in in application of that knowledge, I don't think there is anything more powerful in all the world than a simple act of faith. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.